Property Matters here on Dublin South FM. You can contact the show on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn at iProperty Radio or indeed email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is myself, Carol Tallon, and I'm delighted to be joined by Colm Casey, CEO of Homebuyers Hero, um, a prop tech and, uh, and a system changer and hopefully market disruptor that we're looking forward to hearing about. Uh, Colm, you're very welcome. Look, thanks for having me on. So, Colm, first of all, people might be familiar with you um, not as Homebuyers Hero. So uh, your your first iteration of this was Honesty Hub, which garnered quite a lot of attention in terms of really setting out to transform the industry. So Homebuyers Hero, tell us about Homebuyers Hero. Okay, well, Honesty Hub was born originally of, uh, from a series of ideas relating to both prop tech and fintech in relation to how we can make things more transparent around money generally. And we started to focus then on, on property and, and the name may not have been a, a good fit once we started to drill into things uh, and we wanted to then rebrand to, to make it more about the, the residential property, uh, more about what it is that... Um, we want to kind of do in the market, kind of tweak it a little bit. So the name Home Buyers Hero, it's not that we want to, you know, change things so much that there's no room for for industry or anything like that at all. In fact, I personally believe that industry is is vitally important to having a stable market and a stable type of property transaction. But what we want to do is we want to take some of the old processes, and they are old processes, the offline nature of the, the um, estate agent-centric uh, curation of bidding, for example, where one person has all of the information and information that could be valuable to home buyers, for example, when making decisions, either isn't available uh, from the agent or is not even being collected by an agent because the nature of the way transactions happen prevented from being collectible. So Homebuyers Hero, uh, at its most basic, wants to capture data that's flowing through the property transaction and make it available so that we can bring about a an always-on market confidence among homebuyers. And we think we can all agree in this country that having confidence in homebuyers at all times is, is very, very important. And yeah, so what we need to do is... Uh, Colin, can I just ask you though, when you say to capture data, like I love the idea of that. Can you just be specific as to the types of data? Sure. So <clears throat> if you can imagine home buyers as a group, home buyers know everything about themselves individually. They know more perhaps than the estate agent knows when the estate agent tallies up all of the information that they have on home buyers. So for example, if we're crowdsourcing information from home buyers about their buying journey and the properties that they're interested in, and their own personal uh, preference ranking, shall we say, for the properties that they're looking at, while they are making a, a bid or an offer with one estate agent, be it, be it in bricks and mortar, be it on an app, et cetera, that estate agent doesn't know, for example, whether or not that buyer is also bidding somewhere else. Now, obviously, that's a, a pretty basic piece of information that is not being captured. Uh, it's not being captured sufficiently, at least. Sometimes it can be captured, but sometimes it can't. What it also means then as well for other home buyers who are in the in the market looking at house A, they can see that well the other person's bid strength, bid metric is 60 because they're bidding on another property at the same time. Whereas this person who is bidding solely on this property and can commit to this property is only bidding on one property and therefore 
that information is valuable to the estate agent, it's valuable to the person who's selling the property. And it's, of course, it, it focuses everybody properly on the, um, the bidding that's taking place on the, on the property. Should you outbid somebody as a, from the consumer's perspective, should you have to blindly outbid somebody that you, where you don't know, you know if this is their property of choice, if it's their second or third property, uh, or really what their level of interest in it is. And while all this kind of hidden information that can exist and does exist, but isn't being collected, it all goes to promote, promote uh, rising prices, feeling of competition in the type of market that we're in now. Whereas if people who are perhaps breezing through the market and machine gunning bids all over the place were seen to be doing so, and that their bids on properties were seen to be those types of bids, there wouldn't be as dramatic a price inflation or at least a tendency towards price inflation uh, unless the fundamental underlying nature of the market, i.e. lack of supply, is driving it rather than frenzied bidding. And this is something which is detrimental to everybody because simply put, if we have uh, a lack of information in the property market, it's bad for consumers, it's bad for estate agents. And we can see, like in the 2008 crash, what a lack of information about the nature of our property market did for institutional lenders uh, pumping money into Ireland when, in fact, we should have known and should have been able to see if we had this kind of information that, whoa, things, you know, you know chill out a little bit. And what we want to try and do is with that technology is empower the people who are buying to be able to see automatically if things are overheating you see it you pull back because it's going outside of your comfort zone other people will come in if you can see for example when a property is for sale that there is just one other person who's able to compete with you versus 10 other people it tells you something about the value of the home the fundamental uh you know value that that property has rather than it being part of a bubble being formed or unfortunately rather than being like some people in 2007 buying at those high prices because they did not have information and they were on the downside of the bubble. So that's fundamentally where we want to get to, an open, transparent property market. We feel we can do this because we can piece together the information that comes from home buyers and create the tapestry of what's happening right across the industry without, without needing to resort to um, you know, trying to build this around a SaaS model. We can drive it with consumer data. But in order to get started and into the market, of course, and, and there are issues around the type of investment that would be available to a business like this, which has a strong consumer uh, driver in its own growth, uh, we have pivoted to a B2B type startup, whereby what we want to do first and foremost is increase the supply of property which is available for purchase. And what we want to do is we want to bring property developments to the market pre-planning which might seem a little strange, but we want to bring them to the market pre-planning because we can, we can de-risk the construction finance by having the buyers first. And what's our target uh, area uh, start to start off? Well, some people might, you might initially think, okay, you got to hit the urban areas and where the demand is, et cetera, et cetera. But there's already construction finance available in those areas. So what we want to do is we want to make construction finance viable and available in geographical areas which are not considered viable right now. So if you think about it, I'm located in the west of Ireland here. If a developer <clears throat> wishes to bring a property development to life here, 
they first of all need to have a serious war chest because they're only going to get 60, 70% tops depending on where, what town they go to. Then they're going to need to prove that the market demand exists for what it is they want to build. So they have to overcome the existing house prices. Then they also have to overcome the cost of construction and profit and paying the finance, et cetera. And it's this really massive uphill battle, which basically means developers don't start down that route at all because they can see the huge hurdles that they have to overcome and the huge financial risk they will personally have to bear in order to bring properties to the market. So, hey, Colin, can I can I just stop you there because there's almost two two quite different um, objectives yeah. here, and and uh, both worthy to get there. So, look, let's let's just take a step back to what um, in terms of increasing the transparency of transactions. Yes, we absolutely want to do that, but is there a chance that that could be a double edged sword for the buyer? So, for example. If it is the case um, that buyers are bidding on more than one property, which they feel they need to do to give themselves the best opportunity to win, is this information actually going to to work against them? Well, they feel they feel that they have to do that because that's the nature of the system now. Okay, mm -hmm. so buyers behave within the environment that they're in. They, they behave in a manner which reflects the environment that they're in. So right now, buyers feel, because there is a complete lack of transparency, they feel because they have their own needs and wants and desires as potential homeowners, they have to put a roof over their head. They have all this personal push to get a home. They feel that they have to um, do whatever it takes in order to get a home because they feel it's like a, it's a red ocean out there I have to jostle and elbow my way through to get me a home. And that's what I have to do to provide. However, uh, and, and you know, you can make the point that, well, <clears throat> even if you take gazumping, for example, and you think, well, you know, why, you know, buyers sometimes might act in a manner so as to, you know, disenfranchise someone else potentially, or, or, you know, cut into a deal and the estate agent has to report that information back. And therefore you have this potential for gazumping to happen. Well, that's only because, uh, there is a complete lack of, of transparency. Our platform, for example, has, has tools within it that identifies uh, this type of practice when it's happening and can, can reduce it because it provides information to other people. And if somebody has gazumped, we can, we can inform bidders on another property that they're bidding on that they have done that or attempted to do that. So there's all this sort of checks and balances and rebalancing of the system that can take place. You don't necessarily have to say take one stakeholder behavior as it is now, and then look at it and say, well, won't they continue to do that? With information and with other people having information, the dynamics are just different. You know, that's that, that's so interesting. And I could lose myself in a conversation around this, but I, I think it's, it's unbalanced and overly simplistic to say that buyer's behavior reflect the market conditions. If we say that about construction companies or developers, uh, you know, that they would be lambasted for uh, reflecting back and only operating kind of within the market conditions. There has to be some sense of personal responsibility, personal accountability, um, you know, and I say that having worked with buyers um, in, in the marketplace for more than a decade, you know, there has to be, we, we need to end, if we want a sustainable functioning property market, it needs to be balanced. So it can't be, pro one and anti the other. I mean, we've seen mm -hmm. how that's worked in the rental market where, um, you know, there was an overcorrection where it, the landlord was seen to have all the power. So it, through the RTB, there has been an overcorrection. So now actually, um, 
small landlords feel that they have no power and the the tenants have all the power and now they they'll have tenancies of indefinite or infinite um or indefinite duration and you know there needs to be balance so there needs to be rights and responsibilities on both sides um and i i 100% agree with you in terms of the need for transparency but i think that even even to get there you know, there needs buyers need to be accountable for their behavior. So, I mean, you you touch off um, gazumping there, and I've I've long maintained that gazumping is a is a buyer led practice because buyers choose to to gazump, um, and buyers choose to gazump more than sellers choose to accept a gazumped um, offer. So, I think it's just a really important one to point out. However, you know, the the other side of that argument is that you act like buyers have no power buyers have immense power they just give it away they give it away because um and, and i agree with you that maybe they give it away because they feel they've no option and so that's what we would like to change we would like to see buyers empowered but it's disempowering not to not to point out the fact that they actually do have as buyers they control the market if they if they operate if they operate kind of in, in a way that um, is logical for the market conditions. That just doesn't always happen. No, absolutely, it doesn't. I mean, logic doesn't come into it. I think for the most part, I think for the most part, you have, you know, you have um, most of the drivers for a home buyer buying a home. Okay, one is I need a roof. Okay, I need shelter. But then, depending on income, depending on all these kinds of things, social mobility, all this sort of stuff, you have all these wants and desires that might also get in the way as well. And you have then, well, right now, I think the, the whole thing of I want a roof at a reasonable price for the rest of the remainder of my working life is probably a very big driver. And the other ones are probably a lot lesser so right now. Um, but I think that in, in a, when a system is the way it is, right, when a system is the way it is, humans be they in, in, in some industry or acting in a consumer type uh, uh, fashion, they just fill up the, the holes and the gaps that are left by the system. Now you could say, naughty home buyers, um, why are you, um, you know, if, so, if an estate agent tells you that there's, you know, we've gone to sale agreed, I think home buyers as, you know, humans and, and any, you know, in, in a system and, and trying to accomplish something, they will find and ferret out any sort of gaps in the system or loopholes and they'll try and exploit them to their benefit. I mean, it's very, very difficult for somebody who's looking at increasing rent and, you know, the capacity maybe to buy a home now, but not having it next year if prices are rising they're going to try and do whatever they can in order to secure a home for themselves. And sometimes that leads people to say, look, I know you have a sale agreed here, but I'm willing to go another 2K or 5K or whatever it is on that home. And the estate agent is bound to report this back. And then sometimes the seller is going to accept it. And, you know, so you have all, you have just have a system that whereby, unfortunately, there is no disadvantage to doing that, you know? So, so transparency and openness across the, the information that flows around property deals, the information, it's not, it's not estate agent centric. It's not, it's not property centric. It's like, it's more like a mesh home buyers breeze in and out of all these different properties and they all have their own unique journey. And what home buyers hero will do by crowdsourcing information from home buyers is patch it all together so that anyone who's bidding on one particular property 
gets a much, much better understanding of the competing bidders of, um, you know, the nature of the bidding that has taken place on this property thus far. And even, for example, if, if um, you know, uh, I'm the underbidder on a particular property and you're trying to decide whether or not to outbid me and all of a sudden I've gone sale agreed on some other house somewhere else because I got that one and that was actually the one that I wanted, you get the signal because of the transparency and because of the information that Homebuyers Hero can bring, you get the signal that, oh, actually that bid is now, that's gone because okay. they have gone sale agreed somewhere else. So now it actually reverts back to you where you were at your last bid rather than you having to beat my bid and go higher. And even the estate agent wouldn't know that that was taking place because why would I tell the estate agent that I was uh, after going sale agreed somewhere else? You know, so why would I as a home buyer give that information to home buyers hero? And that's the, the reason for that is this. There's such a lack of information that each one of these people who are out there trying to forage around in the in the madness that's out there in the market and get a home for themselves, they all want information. And by sharing a little and sharing your, your uh, route through, you get information back. And that is how I believe consumers can be empowered to actually behave mm -hmm. in a manner which is, um, you know, conducive to a fair and open market. And it allows estate agents then to, to manage this market and to bring properties to the market and to, to not have, you know, sales failing. And, not, you know, it, it cuts out a huge amount of unnecessary heartache for everybody by just having the information available. Yeah. And, and, and to be honest, Colm, I, I can see that that might even lead to bigger and better things because actually I have, for the last decade and a half, um, you know, uh, I would certainly believe that if buyers work together, they could actually influence the market much more than if they are uh, very self-serving, which I yeah. understand it's a form of survival in the current market. Um, yeah. But actually, it makes things so much worse. It doesn't make them better. So by working together, they can they can make them better. So I think that's great. In terms of, look, I'm a, I'm a big believer in kind of no need to reinvent the wheel. We have some really good online bidding systems uh, for private treaty or auction. You know, can your technology plug in and work with those? It very could possibly do so. I mean, what we have developed right now doesn't have integrations, but we, you know, our, our API is extensible. It is, you know, it's very possible to have that happening. If, for example, a, a bidding technology now provides a whole host of other services that the estate agent might like, et cetera, why not allow that bidding to, to cross over the boundaries between platforms? But what I would say is that because we're capturing the data from the consumer, and the consumer is the one that holds the data for us. Our the intention is that ours could even be a supplementary tool that they carry uh, in their hand through the market as they may encounter other various different bidding uh, technologies. And it's kind of like a sanity check for the buyer. Okay, the estate agent might be using technology X to manage their portfolio of properties, uh, and they want you to use that system for, for just e ease of making the whole thing work, and that's fine. But um, uh, the consumer can use this app as well to see what's going on in a broader sense outside of the information on the specific property. Um, and we're very happy to talk to anybody who, who feels like integrating with that. But of course, we have a problem. And the problem that we have is that being the consumer side technology, um, and of course, you might think in a market such as we have here in Ireland, you might think, hey, isn't it a no brainer that they want something? It might be exactly what you want, but you can iterate towards it, et cetera. But it, 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 it is difficult to, to, to fund something like that 
from the mindset of, of, of the investors that are on the island. It is primarily B2B, or at least if it's B2C, you have to have this extraordinary level of proof of concept before, before you can get uh, the kind of investment that you need to get a proof of concept for a consumer. So there's a kind of a cycle here that's difficult to, to break through. Yeah, well, uh, and that's on kind of the, the consumer side. But actually, as, as you rightly point out at the start here, there, there's almost um, two offerings here in terms of the yes. B2C and, and the B2B. And a column, I don't know if you have done it um, instinctively or intuitively or if you've chosen to do this, but actually you've centered in on probably the two most difficult things to, to deal with on each side. So the first one is on the culture, on the consumer side. I mean, to change a culture, you know, there's a lot that needs to change, to change buyer behavior, a lot that needs to change there. But in terms of the, the B2B side, on the supply side, it doesn't matter what we're discussing in terms of the housing crisis. Everything comes back to supply. We need yeah. more supply. It is it is the circular argument. We can talk about the house. We can debate the best way to do it. But the reality is nothing gets solved if we don't physically unlock more supply or enable or speed up um, the delivery of new homes to the market across all uh, asset classes and, and tenure types. So in terms of... Uh, in terms of how you hope to address supply, you know, you talk about de-risking the market in rural areas. Will you explain how that is intended to work? Yeah, sure. Okay. So very quickly, it's it's very, very risky for construction finance to get into small town county Mayo, small town county Galway, because they're not very sure that the the the, the the current level of market activity might not necessarily jump out as being hugely supportive of overcoming cost of construction, et cetera, for new builds. So <clears throat> what, what we're doing right now is we're talking to a good number of developers and the developers are people who are driving to other sites, other urban areas, et cetera, um, possibly not even building residential. And what they really want is they want to be doing something near home. And many of them have the appetite now from smaller towns and villages to get started at home if they can get the finance. They feel instinctively, intuitively uh, that obviously uh, there is demand for housing in the country. We know through COVID, et cetera, that many people are rural enabled. So we have this large cohort of people who want to leave cities, for example, because it's what they want and they want to get to, to rural areas. And we can see them. Some of them are happy to take fixer uppers, do them up, they buy them. Some of them are looking for maybe the cottage and a bit of land, an idyllic type of rural type of lifestyle image that they have. And they're finding those properties and they're doing things with them. We see people going to the coastal areas and they're driving up property prices, shall we say, in some of the, the more you know uh, popular coastal areas because they're buying those properties because they want to be there. And there's a whole other large uns, unsatiated cohort of people who want a nice substantial modern home with all the facilities on the doorstep. They're not particularly looking for anything, you know, to fix up or anything like that. They don't have the appetite for that. They want a new home. They just want a new home in these rural areas. So what we want to do is we have two buckets, right? We have developers and we have home buyers and the developer can't get started because they can't prove they have the home buyers and the home buyers can't focus their demand in any rural area because there's nothing to focus on because the developer hasn't built. So what we're going to do is we're going to bring we're talking to buyers, we're talking to developers. We have developers very far down the funnel now on getting sites ready to put on our platform. And they will be sites and houses being advertised pre-planning so that people can come along then, home buyers, and they have something to focus their demand on. They can lock in on our platform and be one of the buyers 
when that gets through planning, etc. We have technology developed that will link to their bank accounts, automatically analyze their um, proof of funds, et cetera, anything coming from the bank of mom and dad. They can all connect in and we continually, constantly will monitor this through the planning phase um, so that we can um, understand the viability of the project at all times and to, 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 to reassure the developer that everything is A-OK as we move through the different stages. Um, the construction finance providers then like this, of course, because they know that even before they draw down or anyone draws down from, you know, uh, to get started, that the um, the security is there and will be there at prior to initial drawdown of contracts in place with buyers who want to buy these homes. So it makes it a very, very vastly different type of prospect for the finance lenders. It also makes it a completely different prospect for developers who now right now want to develop property in these nice areas but right now they would have to buy the site put planning permission on it and fingers crossed hope for the best that they're going to get their finance before they know they're going to get their finance this way we prove it out for everybody the finance will be arranged it will have conditions in it pertaining to the planning application etc but nothing too onerous. We will be. Uh, we have partnered with design professionals, architects, etc., who are uh, going to front load some of the work so that we can get it onto the market. This the, the 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 developer has not paid for this work at this point in time, and it's only that when we achieve what we need in the market for the developer that the developer starts to have to pay out something towards the the cost that will be incurred. So what it does is it changes it from something that's just untenable for many of these builder developers, let's call them, because many of them may not have actually um, gone through the whole development process themselves before, but good builders nonetheless, ready to tackle the job. They can't do it now because it's like climbing Mount Everest, you know, in your shorts. You can't do it, no way. However, this way, by, by lighting the way, shining, blowing out all the cobwebs, they know and they can be comfortable getting into the whole process and they're quite interested. Many, many people that I speak to in terms of this, they're a little bit, you know, disbelieving at first, perhaps we go through the process. I, I, I talk to them about the partner, partnerships that we're forging in, in terms of the construction finance uh, and the gearing, most importantly, that we can get up to for these rural developers who are only itching to, to get going. Um, gearing is very important you, 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 because of the de-risking nature of it, our potential future construction finance partners are already talking about getting right up there in terms of percentages. I don't want to mention a percentage specifically yet, but it will be high enough so that most of these guys uh, who have any ideas about it will be able to do it. Um, Colin, for any home builders, look, um, I love the concept of transparency. I love the concept of um, helping home builders nationwide, particularly in rural towns and villages, um, to be able to provide supply because we know that that's needed, you know, even outside of the remote working and, and uh, the relocation exercise that's happening around Ireland at the moment, we know that that's something that's really important. How can home builders around the country get involved? Okay, very simply, homebuyershero.com forward slash developers. There is a short uh, questionnaire there. You can register your interest with us. Um, over the past, you know, the links have only been live for less than two weeks. We're way over, I think, 22 or 23 developers as of this morning who have uh, uh, taken the time uh, to look at what we're offering and fill it out. So homebuyershero.com forward slash developers. We are similarly 
uh, we have a page ready for the estate agents because if we want this to happen at scale, I am only able to reach so far with the contacts that I have, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So really, while we might get one, our first test case done and, and, and hammer it through in a, in a kind of an offline fashion, really, this is something for the rural estate agents to take to hold to realize that if they're going to start picking up the phone and making phone calls, they're not on a fool's errand. There is actually a legitimate, real um, process that has been over over months has been worked out as to how a deal can come together, how the professionals can come on board and and front load the design work, and how the uh, the developer is able to do the things that are necessary without fearing, you know, personal ruin. And that's what they're facing right now. So the estate agent can be the catalyst around this. Homebuyershero.com forward slash estate agents, plural. Yeah. Uh, and estate agents will see how the deal can be done. If they, There's a quick form there for them, for them to fill out. If they fill out and register, we'll get back to them. And there's a framework around which they can uh, pull a deal together. Joe, I'm so happy to hear you um, acknowledge the role that estate agents will need to play because actually one of the things I've seen, particularly outside of the main urban areas, all of the knowledge is locked inside of a handful of estate agents' heads in terms of uh, who are not just the potential home builders, um, who maybe has closed deals over the past five years and is sitting on cash and has still to replace them. But they also can bridge the gap in terms of consumers because they know the people who are looking in the area. They know their budgets, they know their requirements. So I think, yeah, that, that's a really interesting one. And finally, Colin, before we finish up, home buyers who want to get involved, how can they reach out to you or what do they need to do? Well, very simply, uh, we're starting a push very soon on all social media channels. We haven't really kicked that off yet, but it's homebuyershero.com. The main page will bring you by the hand into where you need to go, but specifically homebuyershero.com forward slash homebuyers for anybody who is interested in moving to the countryside, wants to buy a new home. Now we're going to branch into other areas and other market dynamics to get us rolling, to get started. This is the one in particular that we feel there's low hanging fruit. So if you're a home buyer who wants a new modern home in a a small rural town or village in Ireland, go to homebuyershero.com register there it only takes a few minutes and uh, you will be in the know then as these houses and properties uh, come to fruition and come uh, are, are ready to be put online okay Colin, Colin, I best of luck with it I look forward to seeing how this progresses uh, we didn't have time today to touch on something you mentioned there and this is probably the fintech element of um, analyzing bank accounts and things like that you know that's something I'd definitely like to discuss with you again because you know along with culture changes technology brings the need uh, sometimes technology moves faster than policy changes and legislative measures um, so there's definitely a lot to be to be disentangled of what you've said um, mm-hmm. and we don't have time to get into any more of it today but certainly it'd be great to monitor your progress see how home home buyers and potential home builders um, are responding to this. So we might just touch touch base with you again in another couple of months. But for now, that's all we've time for. Um, thank you to Colin Casey, CEO of Home Buyers Hero. We need to take a quick break. Stay tuned. 93.9 Dublin South FM. Welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on social media at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. So now we're joined by Marcus Mufaraj, CEO of Illity. Marcus, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us today. 
Thanks for having me. Um, Illity, before we get on to discussing what the company does, explain the name. Uh, well, uh, I wanted something that was pretty simple to... to um, uh, it's hard to find a short, simple word that describes everything that you do, but we're really about capability for flexibility and profitability is sort of where we started. Uh, and, you know, Illity is kind of a it's, a, it's a software term, like a technical term for the things that a particular software can do is actually referred to as an Illity. Uh, and so when I managed to get Illity.com, I knew it was fate and, uh, and I decided to go down that path. Very good. Well, look, um, capability, flexibility, profitability, these are all important terms right now for real estate. Um, so you might just give us a little bit of an introduction to Illity and the team. Uh, yeah, so so Illity is a, is a no-code framework that's really designed to be the, the uh, packaging, pricing and distribution framework for, you know, the, the digital real estate world. And so... But uh, really, you know, we, we, we realized that there, there wasn't a, a, a framework for digitizing real estate. Everybody talks about it, um, but it doesn't really exist. And so looking at a lot of other industries, um, we really wanted to, to work out how other industries had successfully digitized. And, um, you know, we, we essentially came up with this concept of physical rights management, which is actually kind of similar to digital rights management, but it's basically uh, the, the packaging, pricing and distribution of interactions between humans, enterprises and buildings. I think it's interesting when you try to compare real estate uh, with other industries, because that's what most people try to do and then realise that leads down a path of frustration. Um, so actually, in comparing how digital transformation has happened in any industries, you know, one of the things we found is that uh, uh, the lack of of transformation across real estate is possibly because it hasn't been buyer led or demand led from a consumer point of view. The consumers, because it's such a one-off transaction, they didn't seem to care. They were willing to be inconvenienced, unlike with banking or grocery shopping. So when you were looking at other industries, could you point to an industry that had done this really well? So I think, I think that your, your, your point is, is, is a very good one. Property used to be a really, really simple business. It was very low touch, very low service. And a landlord would sign, you know, you'd sign a lease for 10 years and, and or for, you know, for a period of time. And then the landlord would kind of disappear. Um, there would be no service and no interaction with the landlord unless you didn't pay your bill, and then it wasn't a friendly interaction. Uh, and so, and so, at the end of the day, uh, that was a very simple business, easy to run, not a lot of demand from the from the end user customer. But things have changed, and so in property, and it doesn't matter what class you're talking about. There is more flexibility. There's more services. There's more amenities. There's more community, and and there really is a lot more for a landlord to manage, and that actually creates a lot of complexity. And so, you know, disruption in other industries has come because complexity already existed, and digitization enabled a simple solution to that complexity. And really, that's what's driving it. I think it's interesting when you hone in on community and amenity, because actually there's been so much talk about the changing trends and 
in some way, I think perhaps there's some confusion about what the impact that COVID has had, you know, whereas, you know, we can see that actually a lot of these trends were in play long before COVID. So in terms of the trends you're seeing, first of all, actually profile, who are your, who are your kind of typical customers? So um, I worked for 25 years in flexible workspace. And so amazingly, my dad started a WeWork equivalent in 1978. Uh, okay. and, a pioneer. And so he was a, a well ahead of his time. And, and, uh, and it's a business that's still operating, a company called Surfcorp. It's listed, publicly listed, went public in 1999 on the Australian Stock Exchange, operates in 24 countries. I worked in that business for 25 years and actually built all the automation that actually runs that business. Um, and and you know, we have been encouraging tenants and small businesses in particular, but also branch offices of multinational companies to use flexible space as a, as a good alternative. So you know, we were actually really excited when WeWork decided to blow the doors off and, and, and show the world that flexibility and amenity um, wasn't necessarily a niche business, that it was actually something that should be more broadly adopted by, by the property industry. Uh, and so it was definitely emerging pre-COVID. Um, the ability for people to not be locked into a 10-year lease and to, and to expect a level of service and to expect um, some, some um, amenity was really starting to grow, uh, you know, off the back of the, the co-working trend. Uh, and, and COVID has just definitely accelerated that and really sort of cracked, cracked it open in terms of, you know, what's next. Um, can we can we go back a couple of decades? Because actually, I, um, you're right. Absolutely, you know, we did see that FlexSpace did exist prior to to WeWork. I think they marketed it really, really well. They packaged it, and that's a really important function. I'm not I'm not playing down that. Actually, I, I think despite all of the um, the contentious commentary around WeWork, and there can be some personal professional opinions, but the reality is. It was a transformative company and it transformed the industry. And I, I believe that there's a lot of transformation left that it is, has yet to do. I don't believe it's lived out its purpose at all Definitely. yet. Um, so I think it's an exciting space. But is it fair to say 20 years ago, um, this kind of flexible space offering was really for early stage or perhaps less financially secure tenants that no weren't way. able to secure no long term? No, no, no. No, seriously, um, Surfcorp was very much targeted at branch offices of multinational companies. So more than 50% of Surfcorp's customers were branch offices of very large companies that just needed a small footprint. So it was about having that flexibility. It was about not having a, a, a deep commitment, but it wasn't about being tiny and not being able to afford to have that. It was actually about you know having the convenience and the and the flexibility to to grow and shrink your business or to try something uh, new. And so, yes, it's, def it's definitely good for a small business to keep their rent and their overheads and their, and their people costs low, and that will increase their chance of survival. But large businesses moving into new markets really needed that as well, to keep their overheads low, to increase their chances of survival in a new market. And, and, and flexible workspace operators like Surfcorp were were absolutely um, awesome for that. So would you say that these were maybe, um, when you talk about branch offices, might these be companies 
coming into new jurisdictions and new countries so that yeah, for into, many you're serving foreign direct investment yeah into new markets i mean the 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 prime markets were that we were targeting was businesses entering new markets um you know less than less than 10 people you know if you have any for, for any size of business but the office that you're utilizing flex space for was for less than 10 people and that's really that was a real sweet spot um, for the surf court business and it, and it, it was the secret to its success um, and that might mean that you're a really well established like law firm that has three or four lawyers that specialize in something it might mean that you're a branch office of a, of a very large company it might mean that you know, you've got an office in London and you're a really well-established business, but you want to have your toe in the water in, in Paris or Brussels. And, and so, uh, you know, Flexspace is really, really good for, for that. Over the last 25 years, have you seen a shift in how commercial real estate is financed? Because we know that previously um, banks were uncomfortable with short-term with actually the landlords having short-term tenants. And that's something that actually has been slow to change over the past decade. Have yeah. you seen a shift? I mean, it's super slow to change, but, you know, it's really here's a really interesting observation and hopefully any of the people in that are financing property out there uh, will listen to this. You know, there's there's two industries that, that have essentially a 20 times multiple on revenue, and that's the technology industry and the property industry. And, and, and they have two really different business models. The property industry have really long-term leases that are supposed to prove that you've got the, the annuity that's going to be there month in and month out for 10 years in order to give you that valuation, whereas technology businesses are short-term subscriptions. Now, I refer to this as the, the, the whales and the, and, the, and the sardines, right? And actually... The sardines are just as hard to kill as the whales, right? So if you start, um, and this is part of what we want to do with with Illity, right? So we want to, we want landlords to recognise that they've invested in an asset, they've built a community, they they own that community for lack of a better word, the same way that Facebook owns their community. They also own all the data associated with that, and there's a really great opportunity to to have that you know community turn into much more of a service business the same way that Facebook had to work out how to monetize Facebook at some point. So I think there's going to be a real shift in the perception of the community that's in a building to have a lot more value from short-term um, service non-rent income. And I think it's an opportunity that the landlords haven't yet taken, but I think that it is actually going to start to apply and you're going to start to see the product that landlords are developing be a lot more iterative like a software company so that not only do they get that long-term uh, you know, uh, annuity income stream, but they also have a lot of really small uh, annuity subscription income that's contributing to that. And you can actually treat them with the same valuation. So yes, it's very slow and, and the financial institutions aren't they're not up to speed with this at this stage, but I do think it will change. And I think that, that, that there's going to be proof points along the way. And I really hoped that WeWork was going to be successful to prove that having hundreds of thousands of subscribers on monthly contracts are just as valuable as having, uh, or, or maybe even more value on a per square foot, on a yield per square foot basis than having very large long-term contracts. 
it hasn't necessarily panned out like that, but there are lots of good examples where it has. And Surfcorp is one of those, IWG is another. Um, and I think, I really think that there's, that, 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 that is going to shift, but it hasn't yet. Okay, I completely take that that point on board. And, you know, unfortunately, this is part of real estate being such a large ship. It's hard to turn it around quickly when there's so many different players that, that you need to all row in the same direction. Um, but in terms of, you mentioned there, you know, the services, they're likely to get more iterative, kind of similar to almost like a software offering. But all of this comes back to community. And you're right when you say owning the community and serving the community. So how is the role of landlord changing on thought of that? So I think the landlords have been thrust into this service business, right? Un pretty unwillingly, right? Because the, the property model is great because you build the asset, you take all the risk, you get a 20% return, you go to the Cotswolds for 10 years, you have to install a destination elevator and you come back and repitch the lease because you're awesome because you put a destination elevator in. And now you've got all of these moving parts creating a really complex business. Um, and whether it's ESG data, whether it's... Whether, whether it's um, community, like in terms of social um, interactions, whether it's amenities, whether it's food and beverage services, all of these things, you've been thrust into this new business. And there's two ways to look at it, right? Landlords can either go crawl under a rock and become wholesalers of space and basically have their building hotelized by somebody else um, and they just become a wholesaler of space or they can jump into this opportunity and they can actually decide to turn it into a revenue-generating opportunity. And, you know, Illity is looking to work with the landlords who want to take advantage of that and turn it into a revenue-generating opportunity and, and simplify that, that complex business with all of those offerings. But I understand some landlords aren't going to want to do that. And maybe it's that their financiers don't want them to go down that path and that they're just better to be a passive wholesale provider of a concrete box. Um, but... But at the end of the day, I think there's going to be a really good mix. Um, that, that term hotelized, I, I haven't heard that before. I haven't come across I think I may have just made it up. It, but it's it's very accurate. Um, it's yeah. very, but, uh, you know, you, you talk about maybe a certain unwillingness for landlords to embrace this new space as a service model. And, you know, the, the man credited with coining that term, Anthony Slumbers, I, I think he's been really pragmatic about his um, outlook for property kind of post-COVID, you know, where he talks about, you know, the simple reality is that as humans, we spend 90% of our time indoors. So that's all part of the built environment. So actually, however the shakedown happens, the mix will change, how we use space will change, but we're still going to want to be inside 90% of the time. Yeah. So actually, the demand for real estate on a whole is unlikely to diminish but how that breaks down is probably yet to be revealed. I mean, there's Correct. so much talk about the, the future of work, um, office trends, what we're likely to see. And I mean, you've touched on a lot of it there in terms of community and and um, uh, the collection of ESG data, because we know that that will be the only way to secure investment, to to keep um, yeah. the environment going. What are the trends you think maybe have been really incorrectly floated in the context so of COVID? So first of all, I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen next. Like, and anybody who says they know what's going to happen next is probably lying. Like, they just we don't know what the next what the next step is. They're not lying; uh, they're forecasting. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's a very, very. This is we're in uncharted waters. So, like, forecasting in uncharted waters is like a like a weather report in the seventies. I mean, it's probably going to be wrong. So, 
So, so I think that um, what what landlords should be working towards is responsiveness, right? And so, because they've had this 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 really um, slow moving industry that's now becoming a fast moving industry, the infrastructure that they use to run the slow moving industry. Uh, needs to be modernised, right? And there's a lot of great prop tech around, but the infrastructure itself in terms of how the modern property product is distributed is is very slow. And so what landlords should be focusing on above all else is responsiveness. So how do they respond to what's going to come next? Because it's coming no matter what. We just don't know exactly what it is. And it's going to change in six months, 12 months, two years. And it may go back to normal. But at the end of the day, you want to be able to respond in, in any, in, 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 you want to have a, a framework that gives you responsiveness. Do I need to be more flexible? Do I need to, you know, be sharing a lot more data with my customers and a lot more transparent, both around billing, but also around data that I'm collecting and data that I have the ability to distribute. And, and we think that, you know, working on that framework and the ability to be responsive is, is, is key. And then the trends that are emerging, I mean, obviously building health is a big one and that's sort of an immediate knee-jerk reaction to COVID, but I think overall building health is going to become more important. I think that flexibility as a theme, and that doesn't mean flex space like, like, like co-working or service offices or what it means is having a, a, a much better capability to have a mix of leasing options for tenants and that isn't just in commercial that's in commercial residential industrial and and retail uh, and I think flexibility is going to be emerging and again you need responsiveness in order to, to handle that a lot of landlords because of the infrastructure they have to run their business have not ha, have not been able to respond to flexibility in a, in a, in a native way right so it's not a capability that they have in their portfolio to be able to offer, you know, why we build Illity is we want landlords to be able to offer a 10-year lease in the traditional sense to meet the, you know, the, the debt caveats and all of those sorts of things, uh, plus be able to offer 30 desks in a co-working space somewhere across their whole portfolio, plus parking, plus 20 spots in the gym, plus some lockers, and do it all in one proposal and do it all in one contract, yep. right? And that... Sorry. No, no, go ahead. And, and that's real. That's a real, really native capability or using responsiveness to actually give the customer what they need at the end of the day. So I, I think that sort of flexibility is going to be is going to be a theme that happens. And then I, I think, you know, the whole ESG, uh, aside from whatever data you're giving to the customers, you know, the ability for so right now, all the infrastructure is built for landlords to be able to measure on a building level the performance of the building. But in reality, the you know, the landlord only runs 15% of the building. The other 85% is run by the tenants. So giving a facilities manager locked in a basement some, some stats on what the carbon footprint is for the building actually doesn't create a lot of positive outcomes towards net zero. But actually giving that data directly to the tenants on a per-tenancy, per-occupant uh, basis and incentivizing them to, to, to use that data to get to net zero is going to have a much broader impact. And something like Illity is a great distribution platform for giving them that data. 
Yeah, and that's definitely a trend we're seeing. We're already seeing across say, some states in the US where actually that now, some of the, the data from that actually forms part of the lease negotiations. And that's likely where we're going to get to universally. And um, look, I what you're saying makes absolute sense, um, except possibly around uh, healthy buildings, because I don't think that's a knee-jerk response to COVID. Actually, I, I genuinely think that that trend was well in play long before COVID um, and this move towards healthy buildings, whether it's for acoustic or indoor air quality um, uh, or I ventilation. Agree. It sort of rose to the top, though, right? So there's a whole oh, priority yeah. this, yeah. and yeah. it really bubbled to the top. And then it's sort of going to bubble back down a bit. It's still important, but I just think it's it's it's... It's not number one on the priority list, right? I think there's other yeah. responses that are gonna that are gonna happen. But I totally agree with you. It was definitely happening beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And look, to be honest, I actually love that everybody now knows what the HVAC system is. Yeah. Nobody knew, and you know, as content providers in this space. We had a really tough time getting people interested in HVAC systems over the last decade. Now it's like a hot topic, yeah. <laughs> you know. So, so you, you're right, um, and it's it's changed to from an industry to a consumer conversation as well, which is great. You know, I, and I, that's a really good point you made about nobody knows what's coming next. And uh, you know, you refer to the fact that things might return to normal. But what normal are you talking about? Because we were already seeing so much change. And I know we've said it's a slow industry to change. But like, look at retail. Um, look at the office market in terms of the shift towards uh, flexibility and, and a more community-driven approach. We were already seeing a lot of these changes prior to COVID. So even if the pace of adoption we've seen over the past um, 20 months doesn't continue, we're still on track to improve in terms of hitting sustainability metrics. Um, and, and obviously, the everything that we're working towards on the ESG side of things feeds towards that. But look, uh, response, uh, responsiveness, I think you're right. It's a really, it's a good way to approach the traditional industry because it's much less intimidating than technology yeah. or prop tech. You know, I yeah, think well, responsiveness is a good way to package that. Yeah, I think I think that you very seldom get the 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 opportunity to build responsiveness. Like it's like everything is, and when I say normal, I mean we're going to get back on the curve, right? Like there's definitely we we've got this sort of very um, uh, very very uh, volatile situation here where people are at work and they're not at work and they're not going to use the office and technology's disrupted the actual physical space. Um, I think that they will get back to what is, you know, considered normal and will be on the curve. And the curve may have arced up a little bit because of, because of COVID. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a, a curve where you are, you are then responding to your best ability to what the customer wants as opposed to um, responding to um, an emergency situation, which we've been in pretty much a constant state of over the last two years. So, so I think when I'm talking about normalcy, I'm saying, you know, I, I don't think the world is going to go 100% hybrid or 100% uh, work from home. I think there will some normalcy around mm -hmm. society and, 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 uh, and urbanity will return and we'll go back to that curve of, 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 of gradual improvement with some disruption in the middle. Um, but, but I think that, that at the end of the day, um, you know, you don't very often get the opportunity to build responsiveness. And there is a great opportunity right now to relook at the, the sort of um, the, the nature of, or, or, you know, to, to accept that there's secular change happening in real estate and say, we have an opportunity before we get back to the normalcy of the curve 
to build the ability to then respond to what is the new normal. And that's sort of what, what we're getting at. Yeah, and you made a really important point earlier in the interview, you know, when you talked about that there's no framework for digitizing real estate. So, like, if we bring it back to what Illity is doing and, and the mission there, so just uh, really for the, for well, for myself, but also for the listeners there, Illity is essentially a no-code platform. So you're involved in connecting new and legacy systems. So that, and, and that's really, we've seen that that's such an impediment to tech adoption where people have started to adopt tech. It didn't, you know, maybe it's, it's, um, it didn't perform as expected or as promised or as sold. Um, but as they're bringing in new systems, there's interoperability issues there. And I know landlords are feeling a loss of control there, but also a loss of understanding what the financial implications are going to be. So how yeah. does Illity address that? So a lot of, you know, being in the prop tech world, you would hear the statement a lot that, you know, you need to break down the silos, right? That's that's a very common phrase that's used in, in prop tech land. Interestingly, many prop tech solutions are actually tackling the problem in, in its silo. And whilst because it's digitized, it might be um, might remove friction and it might um, create efficiency, it might create a better workflow. Interestingly, the, the, the holy grail is not breaking down the silos. It seems like that. Actually, the holy grail, particularly if you look at other industries that have successfully digitized, it's rebuilding the silos in an intelligent way that enables you to talk them to talk to each other. So the silos are really important. And what historically in property has happened is they've used the hard silos that have been created either by financial um, structures or by the solutions, the point solutions themselves, creating these silos to protect their, their space. Um, it, it, they've actually used that hard siloing to set rules in the property business. And as you need to be more responsive, you, those silos do need to come down and there's lots of great solutions in, in things like digital twins that are breaking those silos down. Where Illity fits is really building the silos back up again in a modern and intelligent way that enables you to, 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 to have that interoperability that you talk about. And I'll, I'll give you a really like simple example um, of another industry that, that's done this. So, you know, Microsoft are a software company and it sounds weird to say that they needed to digitize right? And all of their product was a digital product. So what the hell do they need to digitize for? But in reality, Microsoft used to print their digital assets onto plastic disks and put them in boxes and sell them in stores, right? That's a very analog distribution mechanism. So they knew how to build the software. They knew how to, to get the software to work on a computer and everything was all digital, but they didn't have a really good framework for packaging, pricing, and distributing it in a digital way. And so it took digital rights management, the, the, you know, the, that concept for them to be able to package price and distribute their own product digitally, even though they're like the smartest digital company in the world. So that's what we're talking about. So all of these interactions that happen between uh, a human and a building need to be packaged, priced and distributed in a really homogenous way to simplify the management of this now more complex business. So literally, Illity is a small piece of code that goes around the defined digital interaction that says who can use it, how they can use it, where they can use it, and how much they might pay. Very good. Uh, Marcus, 
I would love to talk to you for longer about this, but unfortunately we're running short on time. And I'm aware no of one of the one of the topics that I really did want to get in with you um was around fundraising during COVID. Congratulations to yourself and the team. I understand you raised your series A during COVID, which I would definitely love to speak to you about another time because they're the kind of stories sure. that we love for our prop tech startups in Ireland to hear. Um, but I understand that you're likely to be raising a series B in the second quarter of next year. So perhaps we could touch base with you at that stage. Definitely. would love to come back and talk to you again. Super. Thank you so much. That was Marcus Mufaraj, CEO of Illity. And that's it from us this week. Thank you for listening into Property Matters on Dublin South FM. You can get in touch with the show at, on iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. My thanks to Luke and Peter on sound. We're back at the same time next week from myself, Carol Talon, and all the Property District team and the iProperty Radio team. Stay safe.